Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Hi everyone, thanks once more for joining us here at The Race to chat more MotoGP. It's been a week now since Marc Marquez looped it at Mandilica. He had double vision for the third time in his career once he had come out of hospital. Malaysia, he had a crash in Moto2 back in 2010-2011. That was the first instance of this double vision befalling the Spaniard. Then he had another bout of it after a training accident last summer. And now, this Indonesian crash. Simon Patterson, Valentin Harunshi and myself, Toby Moody, are here to talk about Mark Marquez and a couple of other things. So, let's kick off. The question for me is, has Mark returned to his bad old ways of insisting on pushing it to the limit way too often than is really needed? And secondly probably the question we don't know, how long might he be out? Simon, you're on the left-hand side of my screen. I'm going to go with you. You've got pole position. Yes. Um, to answer your first question, we talked about this last time, didn't we, about how unnecessary the, the crashes were at Mandalika because he was just riding harder than he needed to be riding in a warm-up session. Um, it very much looked like a return to the old... Mark Marquez of push it until you can't push it anymore. But he got very good at, at managing that. Doing you know, th- those crashes used to happen with the the front. There used to be slow crashes, mid corner, front washes out, oh there's the limit of the tire, we won't go any further than that in the race. It's not very often we've seen him push so hard that he has the, these sort of crashes. You know, he has a lot of crashes, but he, he hasn't over his career really had a lot of big crashes. Um, and the Did you just say that? Yeah, yeah. He's not had a huge <laughs> amount of massive crashes. They're, they're, he has a lot of crashes, but they're slow. They're front tip they're not, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There are, of course, don't get me wrong, there are a few um, that, that come to mind. But the by and large, as a rule, for the amount of crashes he has... You know, there's a reason that he's never really been seriously hurt up until Hareth 2020 in all of those falls. It's because of the nature of them. They're, they're not massive. They're not Jorge Martin-esque crashes who every time he falls off destroys a bike and breaks a bone. They're not Danny Pedrosa crashes or like early uh, early career Jorge Lorenzo high sides. So that makes it quite unusual. And actually the, the crash... If I look back at his career, the crash that I see is most like the crash in Mandalika that has brought back these vision problems was probably the Hareth 2020 crash that broke his arm because it was pushing maybe beyond what he needed to push and he flipped it spectacularly. Um, there, are, there are definitely similarities there. <sighs> How he fixes that, I don't know. Is it a case of impatience trying to find a way to ride this new Honda yeah that is arguably 
part of it because we know that the new bike is very, very different and it's it's taken a really different riding style that he's still not quite perfected. But also, everyone knew that Honda were in trouble um, on Sunday morning in Mandalika and he still went and did that anyway. Um, it, it was not the right course of action um, to be taken to be pushing that hard and I, I really don't understand why it happened, why he did it. Um, that's I'm sure he has his reasons for it, but the people around him should be asking that question to him at the minute to to try and understand the you know why it all happened. With regards to how long it's going to take for him to come back, how long's a piece of string? You know, it, I don't think at this point anyone knows. Um, Honda have said that the the problem isn't as severe as the last time, but I'll be honest, based on their rather confusing PR tactics since that crash in Hareth 2020 with regards Mark's physical condition. I take everything that Honda say now with a pinch of salt um, because they've not earned any real trust from their comments. Um, yeah. As, as of this recording, we, we don't have a, we don't have a confirmation that he would be missing Termas, which, but I, I, I presume there's no other way around it. So, I'm, I'm guessing I Stefan Rattle is, is going to be confirmed any minute now. So in, in case the segment ages really poorly, my apologies. Uh, in, in terms of the in terms of the the crash itself, I, I see what Simon means, and ultimately four crashes in a weekend always means that you're you're doing something wrong. Yet yeah, two of those came in qualifying where it was extremely obvious and visible on both laps that he was about to to throw it down the road that he was pushing way 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 too hard to get into to get into q2 but the the problem is that's sort of the the marcus mo for for going fast and okay so he spoke about you know being patient through the start of the season while he's not ready to win that uh, Mandalika didn't reflect any sort of patience at all because when you're super patient, you don't you don't crash four times. But Marcus still needs to be at least baseline competitive to put up enough points early in the season, or needed to be. And I think that's the only way he can be baseline competitive is if he finds the the limits in in practice. And that bit him this time. That bit him really really hard. I. The the cruel irony of it is was the race was going to be wet, so none of this would have mattered anyway, and he probably would have had a pretty pretty great result in the wet. Although last time we were in the wet, he crashed twice. Yeah, Le Mans. So who knows? But yeah, I, it's it's hard because obviously you put me on that bike. I crashed two hundred times in every corner, so it's hard for me to be too too down on mark for for falling a bunch and it's it's really it's really a shame what happens and it's you know it, it is it is bad luck that it threw him off that way but also clearly the risk reward ratio i i do think he got it a bit wrong that weekend and it and it bit him unfortunately see i, I don't think that what we saw there was mark doing the typical mark finding the limits thing um, because those finding the limits crashes comes in practice. They don't come in qualifying. I think he was just 
pushing harder than than he had a bike that was capable of. Yeah. Um, no, I mean in, in warm up. I don't necessarily mean the the two qualifying I, I, crashes. Yeah, I'm I'm not even sure about warm up. That's the thing. I'm not even sure about warm up because he looked like someone with a point to prove. He looked ragged. I I don't see the benefit that there was in basically doing what was qualifying laps and in warm up after how badly qualifying had gone the day before. Um, yeah. I, I, I genuinely I don't I don't understand what Mark's gameplay was. I look at it in a in a different way again, which is just maybe the third point of the triangle. In you can't win every race, you can't win every session. We know all of that. And you're both shaking it you're both agreeing with me, you're both nodding in agreement. Um and we saw it in the chit chat in Suzuki in the Motor GP Unlimited behind the scenes documentary that we've both recently seen, all re- all recently seen. You know, you can't always win. He shouted at Alex Rins. You've got to sometimes finish second. You know, the, the, there's a great story of a Finnish rally driver, Yuha Kankanen. You will have probably heard his name, and it was the early nineties. And it was a, a difficult rally, and there was a 10-minute gap from him in second to the guy in first. And it's like, well, I can't catch him, so just, 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 there's no way I can bridge that gap. I will go off. And, of course, he finished second, and he got the points, and then he wins the championship. You know, it, it's, it's happened again and again in many other forms of motorsport, or indeed sport full stop. You've just got to get the points. And more importantly... It's not just the 20 points that he would have got for second or 16 for third, but he'd be fit and healthy and then build and build and build. Instead, he's gone back to the bad old days and nobody knows when he's going to be able to put his leathers back on and, and jump on a bike. And it's it's falling apart. It's falling apart in... He he does the he does the he does the difficult bit well, which is he's got the speed, he's got the championships, and he you don't just unlearn, you don't just lose your speed, as Nicky Hayden used to say. You don't just forget how to ride a motorbike. Sure, the bike's changed. We know why it's changed. Honda had to take that Mark Marquez bike and spread it out with the possibility of other people having the opportunity to ride it and win it, just as they did in the early days of four stroke. But He's got to he's got to just balance it out. It's it's a worry that he might not be back to where he was. He's not right. You you, you can't win every race unless you're twenty nineteen Mark Marquez, who could win every race. And it what we're watching now feels like he's trying to run before he can walk. It's like it's like he's not understanding that it's okay to going back to winning six races and being third in the championship at the end of this year and then building that for next mm. year. He wants to go back to winning every race again. I and, agree. And I agree. It's just not there. That's what's hurting him. Yeah. Might just be a you know a question of, of championship mode is you know, you brought up Alex Rins as a guy who doesn't know when to settle for, for a position, but you know, when he was a bit chastened by the horror run he had at the start of 2021. I think Rins actually did become a bit conservative in terms of his pace. Also, he was post-injury, but, you know, and he was he was running in a way to make sure he doesn't crash until he crashed again in the finale. And he wasn't very fast. So it's, it, it's not that simple. It's not as if Mark can just 
he's not in that previous mark mode where he can just bank points for third or fifth every weekend when he's not feeling so good. Uh, in, in this circumstance, Mark, I think in a dry Mandalika race, if he if it didn't take place in the dry and if he wasn't feeling all that good, where he would have where would he have ended up? Tenth, eleventh, maybe a bit higher, but it's clearly he has, hopefully not had, but I don't know if, if it's a long layoff than had, but as it stands has championship aspirations for this year. And he still had to sort of, again, it's the risk-reward question. He had to, even if he's not going to be a victory contender, he had to make sure he maximizes the points that he scores. And I presume the way he thought he was going to maximize it is by pushing really, really hard in, in warm-up and trying to, to find something extra and then playing it cool in the race. But, of course, yes, a race crash is more costly, but when you crash, you crash. And sometimes the bike throws you up so hard that when you land your weekend's done regardless of what session it was and unfortunately that was that was that you say that you know mark has to learn to go going back to settling for like third or fourth but the last time he had to do that was basically the end of 2017 like the last time he had two two results in a row two finishes in a row worse than second was like end of 17 it's it's literally you know like half a decade ago and he didn't do it last year either he came back and he uncharacteristically crashed out of races until he started winning races again and then just won races until he got injured and had to stop riding so th there's never been a period in the last uh, arguably there's never been a consistent period since like 2015 where he's had to learn to settle and I haven't seen any signs of him, of you know, coming back with that approach. And and like you say, Rins has done it. Rins has done it very well in the last two races. Rins has finished both of the last two races saying, well, those would have been races I would have crashed out of last year, trying to fight for three positions further forward. Um, and I, I, Marquez needs to figure out how to do that, at least temporarily. I, you know, I don't see any other way forward while he's still in this position. When he came back in Portugal last year, third race into the championship, and he had that hell of a start, and he's riding around the outside of people, and he said after the race, I've said this before in previous podcasts, ah, old Mark would have kept going and pushed and uh, pushed the front and plowed it through the corners and whatever. Ah, new Mark said, let's just, let's just be steady here and take it, take it to the line and he did and I know it was his first race back and he got back to the garage and he burst into tears and it was a great sporting emotion wasn't it um you we could all feel for him but I just went good he's finally realized you can't do it on every lap you, you you're you're riding to your abilities and it's just gone back to the old days yeah I don't know because I was a as a fitness limitation he wasn't ever yeah. going to do a, a race distance in in full in full tilt the way he would have wanted to. So that was the overriding, overriding concern. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure I buy into the old Mark Newmark thing. I mean, I, I watched him in 2021 cr crash in like four successive races or whatever. Uh, and I watched him in, in 2019 crash, I think, in a bunch of practices and then just walk on water in basically every race. That's just how he does things. I, I think old Mark and Newmark are, are one Mark. And... 
at, at this point, Mark, I, I don't want to say his luck ran out, but, uh, you know, he lost that little bit because of the injury and that little bit has, has been making all the difference. Because And obviously the change of bike, the, the full feeling isn't quite there. And when he tries to go as hard as he normally goes, it's punishing him. It's also worth throwing in, obviously, that there were extenuating factors at Mandalika with the change in tyre and everything that, that led to those problems. They made a bad situation a hell of a lot worse, um, which is something we saw across the board. But you have to learn to recognise that, don't you? And and like you say, Val, like the, the 2021 Mark Marquez we saw in the first part of the season was the normal Mark Marquez until he got in a point to a point in the race where his physical limitations and his fitness got the better of him and he either dropped back or crashed. There, was, there wasn't really any sense of doing things differently. It's just that he physically couldn't do them differently after a certain point. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't think the problems we're seeing right now beyond the separate issue with his eyesight, I don't think the problems we're seeing with his form are something that's going to be fixed anywhere but inside Mark's head. Very frustrating for Marquez. He's got Argentina coming up, probably not going to it this weekend. And then, of course, the Mark Marquez track, Austin, that's right up there with Saxon Ring. Uh, he knows he goes well at. He had a great run there last year, top of the podium again. Uh, as Val said at the top of the broadcast, we... Uh, waiting for a confirmation of what is happening this coming weekend in Argentina. Uh, probably going to be Stefan Bradl. How he can lose two kilos in about three days, I don't know. But joke, Stefan. I know you well enough to make that joke. <laughs> he thought he thought his days of being a standing rider are kind of done. And oh, flipping hell, I've got to do it again. <laughs> and that flight as well, Simon, which as you know, is not the easiest of <laughs> aeronautical travels, is it? Well, it's it's got to be easier going all that way to race than going all that way to talk about someone else racing on TV. Well, yeah, but when you talk about them on TV, you don't risk your backside being flung off a bike. But you know what I mean, and I know what you mean. Val? Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, first of all, I this risks aging really poorly, but I definitely don't see how, how Marcus could be back for Termas. And also, Kota, I don't, I don't really see. The, even if it's a less severe case of double vision, it's still still double vision. Your your eye nerves are still messed up, effectively. So, as in the last case where Mark just sat and waited, and they're they're not going to rush a surgery or anything like that. In this case, he'll have to sit and wait. And I, my suspicion is that the championship campaign might be over for for 2022 too we, we don't know yet because the start of the season has been really weird so nobody's really built up a, a huge buffer yet so it'll it'll depend on how the next few races go but i think i think the 2022 ship might have might have sailed with with that diagnosis i i wouldn't be surprised if the next piece of news we hear from honda is to tell us that mark has had the surgery that he had in 2011 to fix the problem back then. Um, they they sat it out and they waited to do the sort of the slow conservative healing process this winter and it worked. But, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to do that again mid-season. The other issue has to be, you know, we... 
when when he came back from the injury um, at the end of last year, the training injury that caused this problem and, and saw him sitting on the sofa for three months, he admitted that the next time it happened could be another 10 years or it could be 10 days. And it was a hell of a lot closer to 10 days. It was literally the next big crash, the next concussion that he suffered caused this problem to come back, which has to be just super, super worrying because does this mean that every time he hits his head, he's going to lose three months of his season? Um, if if there is a physical, a surgical way to fix the problem or to at least help make it less risky, then they have to be considering that right now because otherwise every title campaign is questioned. Like every every single time he gets in the bike with his style he risks losing three months of the season and and that's not sustainable for someone whose sole goal in life is to win world championships it's just not sustainable we do have to measure our comments about Mark Marquez and his championship being over he does have 11 points at the moment well at least that's 10 more than Banyaya yeah. but Banyaya will get to race at Termas and Kota, yeah, presumably. You're you're right, but I'm just stating a fact at the moment that Banyaya uh, yeah, yeah, Banyaya's but... start is, and I uh, disappointed. Should I take sides? Yes, I will for this moment. I'm just staggered that the poor guy's down there. Um, but it's yeah, I I would much rather be in his position than Mark Marquez's position right now. That's the thing. Yeah. Very true. Very yeah, true. I guess, <coughs> Very we, true. We don't know if it's just you know if it's just Termas, if it's Termas and Kota, or if it's you know half the season because also like the way the way you put it, Simon is like every time he bangs his head, it's 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 three months. But I honestly, I suspect it's worse than that. At what point do you start to wonder, or do you start to ask, like if it's recurring? At a certain point, it's gonna not become recurring; it's just gonna become permanent. Or something like that. I'm not a doctor. I don't know, but there's there's got to be a risk if you repeatedly damage that nerve at, at a certain point. If you repeatedly ride a motorcycle and crash it, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And ultimately, most riders like banging your head isn't that common a thing in MotoGP, but it does happen. But that that that's the other thing I was going to say. You know, you, we all know that one of my frequent talking points is concussions. And apart from the double vision, this is Mark's second concussion in, what, four months, five months? That's not good either. And if he keeps racking them up on top of each other, then we have another real issue there because we know from looking at other sports, other contact sports, that there's a real, real, real bad long-term possible effect to being concussed on a regular basis. Um, and And... Yeah, it's something that, you know, like I genuinely thought for a point on Sunday that he was going to race. Um, because our concussion protocols are so lax. And the double vision thing only happened 24 hours later when he was on the flight home. Um, but but that, that to me is almost, it's almost as worrying that, you know, he's getting all these bangs to his head. His bikes were getting wheeled out in the pit lane, weren't they? And he, uh, yeah. yeah, his bikes were warming up below us. Like they, yeah. And and even if you if you carefully listen to the statement, um, it was a decision made by the local doctor and yeah, it was a joint Mark decision, Marquez and his it, team. 
the MotoGP okay. medical, but the MotoGP medical team weren't yeah. mentioned in that. Cool. It is the local doctor that signs the rider off for the race. Casey Stoner yeah. fell off at Saxon Ring. I think it was the Honda Year 06. And he said, uh, he had a big whack. <clears throat> and the local doctor said, no, 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 you're not riding. And there was all hell breaking loose, apparently, in the in the medical center down the bottom of the hill there. And he stood his ground. He said, no, I'm legally responsible here at this venue today. I am not letting you race. And I take my hat off to that guy. It's too e it's too difficult if you're the uh, MotoGP doctor, and Hell, to be all, oh, well, it's Mark Marquez. You know, that was the pressure that let Mark Marquez ride at Jerez 2 in July 2020. Have I got my years right? Yes, I have. When he'd, he'd only had his arm surgery on the Tuesday, and this was now the Saturday. As we said at the it's, time, didn't we, everybody? We said, hang on a minute, it's Mark Marquez, he's a never mind national hero, international hero, at a Spanish Grand Prix run by the Spaniards with a Spanish doctor with everybody all... Ah, it takes a strong character to say no. And it was the wrong decision that day. It's also worth noting that circuit doctors are employed by the circuit. The circuits are financially beholden to Dorna and are easily replaceable. So it takes a brave circuit doctor to stand up to the biggest team in motorsport and motor, you know, motorbike racing and say no. So yeah, I always applaud circuit doctors that have the, the bravery to make those decisions because it could be the last race yeah, you work yeah, at. Yeah. It's the commercial balance. That's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the commercial balance. Um, I'm not saying, sorry, I, I need to say there, I'm not saying that circuit doctors have been replaced because of decisions they've made, but that's the thing that you think about, isn't it? It's 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 a thought that will go through your head. It's only natural. I don't know of any examples of it ever happening. But I, if I were in that position as that doctor, I'd be thinking about it when I was signing the form. Commercial balance is why you're going to Argentina this week, Simon. It's it's on balance. Dorna reckon that it's worth going there and not somewhere else. I think it's a very long way to go. It's hassle, um, and it's very expensive for the teams, but it's commercially the right time of day that it's only going to be broadcast in Europe so you get more viewers you get more eyeballs and hopefully you get more sponsors and round the wheel the fortune goes I've actually got a good story about this um someone inside uh one of the teams sent me an interest forwarded me an interesting email from Erta this week um the logistical hurdles of getting from Lombok a circuit a thousand miles from the nearest international airport to Termas a circuit 16, literally on the other side of the world and also a thousand miles away from the nearest airport, international airport is insane. Uh, a number of teams have been told that their freight is going to arrive late to this weekend's race because one of the four cargo planes that flies MotoGP around the world in the flyaways has broken down in Mombasa, Kenya and a freightload of MotoGP bikes equipment is currently stuck in in the middle of africa and they're going to have to fly the other three planes to termas and then loop one of them back to mombasa transfer everything across because they can't get spare parts to this plane and fly it on to argentina again that's how difficult logistically it is at the minute to put this show on the road 
impromptu Kenyan GP. Yeah, yeah, you're about to say it's the closest yeah. we're ever we're getting an African race at the yeah. minute, which is a crying shame. But that's a whole other subject. And it by road a thousand miles from an airport to a circuit is London to Mugello. Exactly, it's a long way. Yeah, but we know it's not. It's not because in this world. Um, where we are, where where Lombok is, it's not even because it's three islands away, with small capacity ferries in between them. It's it's like the Isle of Wight to Sardinia <laughs> through the Canal de Midi. Yes, <coughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, there is an obsession with Argentina of of going there, and it's it's a long. It's just, I just yeah. It is understandable when, when you're you there. get there. It yeah, is obviously a bike mad country, and it's the only place in the world where like there's a huge big square in the center of Termas, and you walk through the square, and there'll be like twenty guys in one fifty cc mopeds that have rode three thousand miles from Brazil to be there, and then next to them are the twenty guys from the Ducati V four Panigale or owners club of Buenos Aires who have rode 1500 miles there from Buenos Aires in bikes wrapped in cling film so that they don't get dirty. It's an awesome mad melting pot of motorbike culture. And I completely get why we go to South America. I just wish we didn't go to Termas because it's so far away from anywhere. It's a long way. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's my point. I I, I get the the passion. It's the final flight. It's the last two hours. Yes. From Buenos Aires to Termas, yes, that's the yes. problem. Uh, first world problems, of course, we're complaining about here. But yeah, yeah, of course, um, uh, you know, downtown Buenos Aires, downtown Mendoza, places that I've been on the rally. You've been on the rally, Val, uh, in that part of the world. Uh, the passion is beyond imaginable. You have to see it to believe it. Um, Give me my Dakar moment a minute. There was a road section from the middle of Buenos Aires, 100 kilometers somewhere, and it left at three in the afternoon and it took about five hours. So each bike, each quad, each car, each truck, bit by bit. And one of the bike riders, I think it was uh, Cyril Dupre, he said, no, it was Matthias Wagner. He said something like, for 100 kilometers, there were people on the side of the road both sides of the road with no gap in between each person. Solid people for 100 kilometres. I said, well, that's a line of 200 kilometres worth of people then, wasn't it? He said, I've never seen anything like it in my life. So as you say, Simon, the passion is is quite something. Now, uh, just remind us, we haven't been there since 2019. They've had to do a bit of upgrading. Well, they've had to knock it down and build it again because the whole place burned down. Um, so we're we're not actually entirely sure what we're going to find in terms of pits and facilities. Um, I know they've been working like crazy since, like, like the in their defence, the reconstruction work started the week after. Like things were still smouldering whenever they had, they had equipment in to try and rebuild it. Um, so fair play to them for that because it's not an easy task. Um, the the good thing is that you know, essentially the circuit hasn't changed. We're still going back to the same track. Um, so that it's not like we're going to somewhere that has had huge changes. Um, the other good news is after the high temperature debacle of Mandalika, uh, the weather forecast for this week at a circuit that can be very, very hot, like the we all remember the Scott Redding exploding tire. Um, 
the the temperature for this week is forecast to be like a very pleasant sort of 25 to 28 degrees. Um, so everything is looking really, really, you know, promising for a good return to the track. Um, and, and obviously they're desperate to get us there because of COVID and fires and, and everything. But yeah, it, it's, it's probably going to look a little bit different on TV, um, in terms of the pit buildings and stuff, but we don't actually know the answer to that yet. So let's see what we, what we find when we get there. The garage is a pit garage. By the, by the time you put all the, the, the hoardings up and you got the tool cases out the back of the, uh, of the flight cases, it, they're all the same. They're all the same. Maybe, hopefully, hopefully they've taken on board some, uh, some of our comments and built us a media center with windows this time. Oh. Not many tracks, not many brand new tracks get a chance to do a second over on uh, things like media centers. <laughs> So that'll be uh, that'll be a good trip. Um, other news that has come through MotoGP in the last week or so is the banning in 2023 of the squat devices, the whatever you want to call them. Um, Val, this is something that technology and the creation through the human mind has brought on. You know, the, the human mind is a very fertile thing, but everybody's got it. Not too many people are happily happy with it, and now it's been stopped. But it's been stopped partially, almost controversially. Uh, I, I wouldn't even say like only controversially in the sense that it's it's a very partial stopping. So the the rear whole shot and right height devices are are staying. No mention of anything being done to them. The front device, right height device that has just come in is going to be banned at the end of the year, but it's only going to be banned for use in the race distance. If you only use it at the start, I believe you're okay. I haven't read the the regulations that they've, that however have been updated, but the, the FIM announcement suggests that that's the case. So it's, you know, effectively they've only really, instead of maybe a full-on ban that I think some people would have wanted, they've only done a, a, a partial of, of this newest thing that most people who are not Ducati agree is a bit too much, is taking it a bit too far. I imagine there are some people who would like to see the whole the whole range of it uh, banned, but that I think that one is a lot more complicated than just Ducati versus the world, whereas this one nobody wanted but, but Ducati, as far as I can tell. And even Ducati, it seems, were perfectly happy to say, okay, this goes at the end of the season. I, I think it's a great decision. Um, I think that it's an unnecessary thing that has no road bike connection. There's no development work in it. And it's another point of failure. Um, it's funny that since we started talking about a potential ban coming in, which is something we first wrote about in Qatar, I think, at the first race of the year, um, I've kind of got a few people coming to me and saying, oh, I so saw what you'd written. Um, you know that this happened or you know that that happened. And and essentially, without us really knowing about it, there's been all sorts of cases of these things getting stuck on during races. Um, well, what had happened to Brad? It happened to Brad in, in, in Brad yeah. Binder in Mandalika. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that is a lot more common than we've ever been led to believe is now what I'm hearing. Um and you know, there's the only reason it existed was to try and mitigate an area where Ducati was traditionally a bit weaker. Then everyone caught, everyone catches up eventually with it, 
And then at that point, it just becomes something else to spend money on because it isn't going to get significantly faster. But it's another point of failure. It's another thing to break. So, yeah, I think the way that they've done the ban, bringing in it at the end of the season um, and giving Ducati their, their chance to, you know, Ducati will will benefit from it for the next few months, the next few races. Other teams don't have to spend a huge amount of money chasing them down that wormhole. And then we get to the end of the year and it resets to normal. But in saying that, um, I think part of the reason that in the end Ducati gave in without too much of a fight is because they're not finding it as easy as they thought it would be to replicate how well it works on the rear with the front. Um, they weren't on the yeah. bikes in Mandalika. They weren't on the factory bikes. They'd been taken off again after, like, frankly, an absolutely abysmal start for most of the Ducatis in Qatar, which is not something we've, you know, we've we've become used to. They've been incredible off the line for the best part of two years. We got to, Man- or to Qatar for the first race. They weren't. Um, then they took them off again in Mandalika, and Jack led from the line. So maybe there's a there's a reason that. Jacetti didn't fight that battle too hard, and it very much was, from what we understand, Jacetti versus the world. Um, if rule changes, so there's two ways for the technical rules to be changed. One is a unanimous decision from the Motorcycle Sports Manufacturers Association, which is the six factories, but they can be over. That has to be unanimous, and what we understand, it was five versus one, but they then can be overruled by the the Grand Prix Commission. And from what I understand, it was a Grand Prix Commission decision where the MSMA get one vote rather than you know six votes, and it doesn't have to be unanimous. That's the important bit for me. That's the bit that fascinates me the most. Is you can't have the tail wagging the dog too much. And if Carmelo had to stand into the Grand Prix Commission, Carmelo from Dorna, and say no, this has got to stop because otherwise it's a space race and it's a waste of money. And as you say, it's a potential technical failure thing then more strength to him yeah it's good that it shows that the i think it shows for the first time in a while really that our our rulemaking system is quite good that it works quite well in that regards where there was obviously a consensus if not a unanimous one from the manufacturers and that was heated by gpc and and we got a conclusion that kind of doesn't anger anyone too much now in saying that it is a partial ban, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it it's it's a well implemented yeah. partial ban. Yeah, but I mean, there's. I think the rear devices are by now a lot less controversial. But I still, I still think there are a fair amount of people who would want them just that whole area of development just completely erased from the whiteboard. Uh, riders are again. They're. I think Maverick Vinales made a pretty convincing case for why. The, having the rear device actually helps in terms of safety. But I do recall that maybe a couple of years ago, while they were still in development, there was a line of thinking that as soon as everybody has a, a functioning good one, we're all just gonna we're all just gonna call it even and remove all of them. And with this latest decision, that suggests to me that that's not really not really on the agenda. If if MotoGP wanted to make a uh a bolder move personally um, with the rules that would solve the whole problem, then it's easy. Let the teams start experimenting with electronically controlled suspension 
which is banned by the rules, which this has all been brought in as a way to circumvent that, which potentially could end up more expensive. But also you can go out now, I can go to a showroom down the road, buy a brand new super bike, put it on the road and it's got electronic suspension, a standard. So there's a, you know, and we've already, we've already had this mistake once in MotoGP. We banned dual clutch technology gearboxes uh, because they were potentially seen as too expensive. Now, Half of the half of the bikes on the road have DTC options and they're great, but instead we're using seamless technology gearboxes, which are insanely expensive to maintain, and we'll never go on a road bike because they have to be stripped after every five hundred kilometers. So th- there's a chance to actually do something quite forward thinking here with the rules and solve this problem all at once, but there doesn't seem to be any any move towards it. So. Not like a technical idiot question for me. Does that not risk uh, offsetting the competitive balance that MotoGP has worked really, really hard to preserve the way it is right now? It, it does, but considering we've only got two suspension manufacturers, there's probably a way to bring in some sort of a semi-control system where, you know, if if Olins gives something to Mark Marquez, then they have to give it to Marco Bezzecchi as well there's got to be some sort of a control system. Um, obviously, KTM's four bikes are the outliers with WP, but I'm sure there's a way that, you know... I, you would imagine if WP bought something for one of the KTM's, all four would get it anyway. So, you know, or, or you just take it completely out of the hands of the suspension manufacturers and make it another element of the control electronics package. There's There's got to be a way to do it that aids development and, mm. and solves this problem if, mm. you know smarter brains than us mm. in that field put their put their mind to it mm. i can i i can always see the the cost saving when there is a control element put into a motorsport environment whether or not it's suspension or uprights or wheels or tires or fuel or whatever but i do have my shoulders drop a little because it takes away that human element that that somebody can come up with something wacky that is a V5 Honda that is um, radial tires that is a step forward with the suspension or something or other, I or aerodynamics on on motorcycles, which was I really did think was quite slow to arrive in motorcycle racing after all the years it's had on four wheels. Um, I do I, when I was commentating uh, the British Touring Car Championship for ITV4, Jason Plato was on pole or his front row somewhere like Alton Park and he got to the grid but a part failed on the car and it was a control part and I felt a bit sorry for them because they didn't make that part and yet it failed and he couldn't do the race. Um now that's an extreme example, but um, it's it's dumbing down a little. I, I quite like the creativity of, uh, of of an open rule book. Shall, shall I say, Simon? Yeah. The the other thing is that Ducati, in particular, have really flipped this on its head. Um, there are the smartest motorcycle engineers in the world work in MotoGP. If there is a way to achieve what they're trying to achieve, they'll find it, regardless of what the rules say. We've saw, you know, Ducati pull off technical stunt after stunt and new part and new device and you know the 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 let's not forget the the whole like arrow started with Ducati trying to find a way to cool the bike the whole uh ride height device 
thing started because of not being able to use electronic suspension, the seamless gearboxes with the dual clutches. The uh, you remember the controversy a few years ago in Qatar with the the rear spoiler that tire um, cooling that was supposedly to cool the rear tire tire cooling exactly. It was an aerodynamic part, but you know. There's always a way around things, but generally they cost more money than doing it the most straightforward way. So banning the most straightforward way is often seems a bit... Which is why know, when... Yeah, n- not the smartest... No, no, which is why when, when Harold Bartol, even with a 125 KTM, he came up with a little hybrid. This was like 15 years ago. He came up with a yeah, tiny yeah, little yeah. hybrid thing because yeah, there was a hole in the rule book. And then they went, whoa, you can stop that. And yeah. the shutters came down. Yeah, with a flywheel. Yeah, Um, which is what hybrid was in those days, just as it was on the Le Mans cars. And and, and there was talk, of course, that a few years ago that that Ducati were experimenting with that again. And we never got to the bottom of that, of whether or not they they were officially experimenting with it or not, even though there was rumours about it. But the rulebook for the following season was updated to specifically forbid hybrid technology. So they were. So something was up. And it was yeah, probably done yeah, the same yeah. way with a flywheel. Any long-term chat about hybrid in another way? You know, we're talking about the sport leading from the front. Is there anything that you have heard? No, nah, I, I think no. hybrids and bikes just don't work. It's a size thing. Mm. There's just, I there's agree. Just not I just have to room. ask Yeah, and of course, there's just not enough room to effectively package two separate propulsion systems into a motorbike. Um, yeah, I, I think, I genuinely, I think that the steps that MotoGP are making to be more sustainable going to, uh, going to artificial fuel is a good move. Sustainable fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's always going to be, so I, I completely understand the existence of Moto E and I think that the future of motorbikes in cities is electric which is why we've seen people like uh, Ducati and KTM pushing so hard that way. But I also think that... Can I just interrupt you there? Can I just interrupt you? Because I was at a dinner the other night with a government advisor, a freelancer, not a government employee, but he advises the government on electric mobility and sustained an alternative fuel mobility here in the UK. And he says that uh, this year, the government is probably going to announce a different... Sector of mobility vehicles along along the lines of that Renault Twizy thing, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The side, the, 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 like open wheel, smaller vehicles to, that can use bus lanes, taxi lanes, uh, be more space efficient, so a narrower, a smaller footprint on the road, uh, students. Uh, campuses to get them from A to B that they're not using single occupancy electricity. It's got the car will only do the vehicle will probably only do 60 kilometers full stop. So it's not going to be for somebody like me who lives in the countryside and needs to drive 23 kilometer round trip to go and find a go and buy a pint of milk. Um, it's a completely different animal, and that's something that they're going to take forward here in the UK at least, uh, from what I've heard. So we shall see. So that kind of ties in with, yeah. You you know, uh, uh, mobility in cities. Yeah, I, I the point where the point where Moto GP and Moto E meet is so far in the future. I can't see it. That that's the thing. I just they are separate solutions for separate problems: the internal combustion engine and the electric engine. No one is going to ride a an electric GS around the world, are they? 
that's no, the thing. No. And it's and, just it's a it's a space and a packaging thing. You just can't put and and MotoGP quick enough, I think, at the moment, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and you know, if anything, the like the, the sustainable fuel thing that they're doing where where you use wind power to convert seawater into uh into fuel is you know, it's it's the lowest uh, carbon emission way of doing what we're still doing. Um, it we're at the front of the technology with the announcement that from twenty twenty four it's going to be forty percent of our fuel, and and from twenty twenty seven it's going to be a hundred percent of our fuel, and it it yeah it keeps the sector alive nicely, and it it extends the lifespan of of internal combustion engines by another twenty years at least, I think. You know that, like exactly. when I say when I say that the point where Moto E and Moto GP meet is beyond where I can see, like it's we know that Moto GP works in six year sort of rule blocks, and it's going to be at least three. I think any move to make Moto GP electric will would be at least three of those rule blocks away. It's eighteen years away, so we're we're mm. yeah. You don't have to worry about that. Mm. And and as we've always discussed, uh, electric is not necessarily the the bigger answer for the planet. It's just as you touched on, Simon, um, a, a city answer, yeah. a short distance answer, and such like. Uh, there's a long way to go uh, with with technology and what we can do. <clears throat> Remember that they went from John Glenn to the moon in one decade. You know that that's yeah. a big leap. Yeah. yeah, and and with the technology that they had then, which was a completely different animal in the 60s so so yeah interesting times okay then uh right simon i'll let you um pack your case and your sun cream ready for ready for for argentina and uh your eye mask because it's a long flight down there yes. it's a long old trip uh, Val, thank you for joining us as well. Keep in touch with what Simon and Val have got to say through our website, therace.com. Keep in touch with all of the MotoGP and Formula One news together with podcasts and our YouTube channel as well. In the meantime, take care and we'll speak to you next week after round three of MotoGP 2022. The Athletic.